Good morning, church family. For it is wonderful to see all of you here today for our third and final week of working our way through the Olivet Discourse. As today we will be finishing up Mark chapter 13 by looking specifically this morning at verses 28 through 37. Or when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ offers the lesson of the fig tree and then speaks about the return of the Son of Man, which comes to us this morning, church, following Jesus Christ, saying to one of his disciples, as we saw all the way back in Mark chapter 13, verse 2, in essence, that the magnificent and massive and beautiful temple that he, Jesus Christ, just came out of, that it would all one day be absolutely destroyed. Which caused then four of Jesus' disciples, those four being Peter and Andrew and James and John, to ask Jesus Christ then on the Mount of Olives, as we see in verse 4, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Or as the evangelist Matthew puts it in his account of the Olivet Discourse, tell us, When will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And what seemed to be the disciples' thought process here, church, was that they believed that the destruction of the temple, as just foretold by Jesus Christ in verse 2, that that type of catastrophe or destruction that it would be a part of or accompany the end of the age or that of the eschatological end. And thus, because of that, Jesus Christ then goes on to answer his disciples' questions here, as one commentator writes, by weaving together for them in a unified discourse a prophetic scene involving two perspectives. Number one, the near event, that being the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And number two, the far event, that being the coming of the Son of Man in clouds, with great power and glory, the local event here serving as a forerunner of the latter universal event, to which Jesus Christ then opens his Olivet Discourse by initially warning his disciples, as we see in verses 5 through 13, about false Christ and about false messiahs, and about wars and rumors of wars, and about nation rising up against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and about earthquakes and famines, and then about being delivered over to councils, being beaten in synagogues, standing before governors, about brother delivering brother over to death, and then even being hated by all, Jesus Christ says, for my name's sake. Only to then go on to say to his disciples in verse 14, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he not ought to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Which, as I noted last week, church, the abomination of desolation seemingly found its first or initial fulfillment in 167 B.C., when the Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes IV had some kind of altar built in the Jewish temple. And he honored the pagan god Zeus there by offering a sacri- or by offering a pig on it. However, being that Jesus Christ also uses the phrase, the abomination of desolation here in verse 14, 
For that seems to indicate, church, that Jesus Christ did not believe that this prophecy then would only find fulfillment in 167 B.C., but that it would also then find other fulfillments as well. Those fulfillments seemingly being to when the Roman general Titus and his abominable Roman army came in and desecrated the temple and absolutely destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and ultimately then, to when the Antichrist, or to when the man of lawlessness, as Second Thessalonians chapter 2 puts it, brings about a time of great tribulation against Christians at the end of the age as well. And yet after that ultimate and great tribulation at the end of the age, as we then see in verses 24 and 25, the sun then, church, for it will be darkened, and the moon then, church, for it will not give off its light. And the stars then, church, for they will be falling from heaven. Only then with this apparent setting of darkness, just kind of hovering over the earth at this time, will, verse 26, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, come again in the clouds with great power and great glory and send out at that time, verse 27, the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. In essence, that at the glorious return of Jesus Christ, the elect, the true children of God, for they are going to be gathered from everywhere, church, from heaven, from earth, from everywhere, and they are going to be gathered together at that time to the king of the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ. To which Jesus Christ then, in light of all that, turns his attention in the Olivet Discourse to the lesson of the fig tree and to the day and the hour when he, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, will ultimately come again. Which takes us now to our thesis statement this morning, church, or to the main theme of our sermon this morning, which is this. Always be ready for the return of the Son of Man, since he, Jesus Christ, will most assuredly come again. Again, our thesis statement this morning, church, is this. Always be ready for the return of the Son of Man, since he, Jesus Christ, will most assuredly come again. And thus, at this time, church, let's open our Bibles up this morning to Mark chapter 13, verses 28 through 37. And if you're joining us today and do not have or do not own a Bible then please feel free to grab and even to keep one of our church Bibles, which are all located in the chairs in front of you, as our gift to you this morning. Because trust me, we want you to have and to be reading your very own copy of the Word of God, which you can start doing today by turning that brand new Bible of yours to page 850. And by joining us as we as a church family hear the Word of God together this morning. For again, we will be in Mark chapter 13 this morning, church, and we'll be looking specifically at verses 28 through 37, where John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. 
So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, how humbling this text is this morning, as it has been over the past two previous weeks. Father, there is a sobering reality as we reflect on the fact that the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, will come again. And thus, in light of that, and in light of the fact that we do not know when that day will be, is, Father, give us the grace we need to always be prepared, to always be ready, to always be obedient to you, to not be asleep, to not be foolishly dozing off into sin, but to always vigorously doing the work of our Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. For today is always the day when we should be doing the work of our Master. Today is always the day when we should act like we expect the Master to arrive. And thus let us not be a church, Father, that is asleep, but give us the grace we need to stay awake and to do the work to do the things that you have called us to do. Father, I pray you continue to give us a sense of humility as we approach this text this morning. Father, I pray you help my lisping and my stammering tongue this morning to give these dear ones here exactly what they need to be built up in the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. As I have been reminded throughout this discourse, and as I will remind these dear ones toward the end of the sermon, this passage is not so much about giving us details about mysterious things at the end of the age. It is to admonish us to be obedient today. Father, keep us awake today, tomorrow, until your Son comes again. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first of two points this morning, church, is this. Point number one, always believe the words of Jesus Christ. Since even though heaven and earth will pass away, the words of Jesus Christ will not. Point number one, always believe the words of Jesus Christ. Since even though heaven and earth will pass away, the words of Jesus Christ 
will not. Verses 28 through 31, which reads, From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So following Jesus Christ, just telling his disciples in verses 24 through 27 about the coming of the Son of Man in great power and great glory, and then having the elect, the true children of God, gathered to himself at that time, Jesus Christ then, as we see in verse 28, says to his disciples, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. And the point that Jesus Christ here is initially trying to make is that unlike the branch of a fig tree that is barren and bare and stiff during the months of the winter, in Jesus' illustration here, he is talking about a fig tree's branch, verse 28, when it becomes tender and puts out its leaves, which, mind you, church, would naturally take place during late March or early on in April. And when that does indeed end up happening or when the fig tree's branches become tender and they put out their leaves, well, then that means, verse 28, that summer is near. Since it's during the summer, church, when the figs on the fig tree become mature and they are ready to be harvested. Simple enough, right? To which Jesus Christ then goes on to say to his disciples in verse 29, so also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. Which naturally leads to the question then for what exactly is Jesus Christ referring to here when he says in verse 29, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. And make no mistake about it, for this really is a difficult and confusing verse to try to interpret and to exegete. Nevertheless, I tend to side with the scholarship here, church, that believes, as Walter Wessel explains it, that the simplest and least problematic solution here is to take the primary referent as the destruction of Jerusalem. And that both these things in verse 29 and all these things in verse 30 refer to the events of verses 5 through 23, which climax then in the abomination of desolation and the destruction of Jerusalem. While also keeping in mind here, church, as we have done throughout this discourse, that this catastrophic event then serves as a prototype or a model, if you will, for the ultimate crisis which will precede the coming of the Son of Man. And thus when Jesus Christ then says in verse 29, so also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near, what he, Jesus Christ then, seems to be referring to is the coming of the many false messiahs and the false Christ who will look to lead many astray, verse 5, and to the wars and the rumors of wars, verse 7, and to nation rising up against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and to the earthquakes and the famines, verse 8, 
And the disciples here being delivered over to councils, being beaten in synagogues, and standing before governors, verse 9. And to brother being del- brother delivering brother over to death, father his child, children rising up against parents, verse 12. And to the disciples being hated by all, as Jesus Christ says in verse 13, for my name's sake culminating or climaxing then, church, with the abomination of desolation and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And thus when Jesus Christ says in verse 29, so also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. Or as the NIV puts it, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near. He, Jesus Christ then, seems to be referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., Or again, as Walter Wessel summarizes it, for just as summer follows the sprouting of the fig tree, so also the destruction of Jerusalem will follow the preparatory signs, or the birth pains, if you will, as described by Jesus Christ in the Olivet Discourse. To which Jesus Christ then goes on to say to his disciples, in verse 30, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place, which again is another difficult verse to interpret and to exegete, to the point that some scholars believe that the phrase, this generation, in verse 30, refers solely to just Jewish people here, church, whereas other scholars believe that it refers to Christians of every age or of every generation church, whereas still other scholars believe that it refers to those who will ultimately be alive at the end of the age when Jesus Christ comes again. However, I again tend to humbly side with the scholarship that believes that when Jesus Christ says in verse 30, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place, that who Jesus Christ was actually referring to was quite simply suggests the generation who was alive with him at that time, a.k.a. to the contemporaries of Jesus Christ, who ultimately then, verse 30, would not pass away until all these things take place, which most certainly did end up taking place, church, since the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem all took place in 70 A.D., which means then that Jesus' contemporaries, or that that generation then, who Jesus Christ referred to in verse 30, that they would have been approximately in their 70s at that time, and would have still been around and seen the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. To which Jesus Christ then goes on to say in verse 31, that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away, that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And that, as Eckerd Schnebel explains, the words of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the heavenly Son of Man, that they are more enduring than creation itself, a statement which implies divine dignity. For like the word of God, Jesus' words are eternal. And thus Mark's readers then would have understand Jesus' statement to apply beyond just to verse 30 and beyond to just this Olivet Discourse in Mark chapter 13, but instead would have applied it to the totality of Jesus' teaching. 
And thus, in light of that, my question then to you all here this morning, church, is this. For do you then, at this time, view the totality of Jesus' teachings and his sayings and his predictions as more enduring than that of creation itself? For as D.L. Moody once wrote, that if God has hidden me in the secret pavilion, then let men slander me and abuse me if they like. For if I can truly say that God is my Father and that Jesus is my Savior and that heaven is my home, then let the world rail against me and let the flesh do what it pleases. And I will not be afraid of those evil tidings since my trust is in God. For isn't that a good footing for eternity? That heaven and earth shall pass away, but God's word shall not. And thus, if you get your feet, Christian, fair and square on the rock, then let the waves beat on you if they will. Since as one Christian once said, although he trembles at times, his foundation never does, since he had planted his feet firmly upon the rock. And thus, do not follow the lead then, church, of the so many people out there today who believe that what Jesus Christ said some 2,000 years ago, or taught some 2,000 years ago, or foretold of, predicted, proclaimed, and declared some 2,000 years ago, that all those sayings of his have gone out of date and have gone out of style, and have become archaic, and antiquated, and old-fashioned, and quite simply did not stand the test of time. Because the fact of the matter is, although the grass withers, and the flower fades, the word of our God, for it will endure forever. Isaiah 40, verse 8. Meaning that if Jesus Christ then says something, church, or teaches something, church, or predicts, proclaims, foretells, or declares something, church, we then, as the children of God best be believe in that something, church, no matter what this world around us says, does, or believes. Since although heaven and earth will most assuredly pass away, the word of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will absolutely not. Which brings us to point number two. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, will come again. And even though we do not know when he will come again, we must always be ready for his return. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, will come again. And even though we do not know when he will come again, we must always be ready for his return. Verses 32 through 37. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. 
So following Jesus Christ, sharing with his disciples the lesson of the fig tree, Jesus Christ then goes on to say to his disciples in verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And that Jesus Christ seems to be transitioning here, church, from the primary referent of the text being the destruction of the temple, as we saw in verses 28 through 31, to now in verses 32 through 37, the primary referent of the text being the coming of the Son of Man. And I say that because, as we see in verse 32, Jesus Christ, he opens with, but concerning that day or that hour, which seemingly signifies that a different subject matter is now going to be discussed in the text, and being that that day and even that hour in verse 32, as numerous commentators point out here, are both phrases that are often used eschatologically in the Bible. For example, in places like Isaiah 2, verse 12, 2 Timothy verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 12, and in John chapter 5, verses 25 through 28. For Jesus Christ then, when he says in verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, for he seems to be referring to then to the great day church, or to the final day of the Lord church, or to the coming of the Son of Man church which verse 32, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. In essence, Jesus Christ is saying to his disciples here that at this time, that only God the Father knows when he, Jesus Christ, will come again. To which you might be sitting there this morning, church, thinking and wondering, for how is that even possible? that Jesus Christ at this time does not know when he will come again. Since isn't Jesus Christ supposed to be truly God, in that he is of one substance and equal with God the Father, and is omniscient like God the Father, and knows all things just like God the Father. And thus, if that truly is then the case, for how can he, Jesus Christ, then not know something here, especially something as important as to when he, Jesus Christ, will come again? And the answer to that question is, or the reason how that is possible, is because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Whereas the divine Son of God, Jesus Christ, who truly is God, truly did indeed take on human flesh and was born in the likeness of man. Or as one commentator explains it, when Jesus Christ spoke these words to his disciples, Even he had no knowledge of the date or the time of his return. And that was because, although Jesus was truly God, when he became a man, he voluntarily restricted the use of certain divine attributes, Philippians 2, verses 6 and 8. And he did not manifest them unless directed by the Father. And thus, although he demonstrated his omniscience on several occasions, He voluntarily restricted that omniscience to only the things his father wanted him to know during the days of his humanity. Such was the case regarding the knowledge of the date and the time of his return. However, after Jesus Christ was resurrected, he resumed his full divine knowledge. 
And thus because at this time in the text church, only God the Father knew the day or the hour when he, Jesus Christ, would come again. Jesus Christ then says to his disciples in verses 33 through 36, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And that's similar to the doorkeeper here, church, who has been commanded to stay awake. So too must Jesus' disciples stay awake, since they too, just like the doorkeeper here in the illustration, do not know when their master Jesus Christ will come again. Verse 36, lest he come suddenly and find them asleep. In essence, find them being spiritually careless church, spiritually lackadaisical church, and neglecting to do the things that he, their master Jesus Christ, has told them to do. And thus, in light of all that, for let us also then be sure this morning, church, that we too are not sleeping on the job and are not being spiritually careless and are not being spiritually lackadaisical as well, since our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will most assuredly come again. And I would hate to see any of you here this morning, church, asleep, caught off guard, or being spiritually careless at the time when he, Jesus Christ, does indeed come again. And thus, as we begin to close this morning, church, I'd like to do so with the non-Christian who was here first, and to share with you at this time, non-Christian, who exactly this Jesus Christ ultimately is, and what exactly this Jesus Christ ultimately accomplished for those who place their faith in him. And I'll begin, non-Christian, like this. For this Jesus Christ, for he is truly God and truly man. And he came into this world to live and to dwell amongst us and to save us from our sins by initially living for us the life that we could never live. And that the life that Jesus Christ lived here on earth was a life that was holy and righteous and just and good. And thus because of that, he, Jesus Christ then, fulfilled the law of God in its entirety, perfectly and completely non-Christian, all four the very children of God. However, keeping the law of God, all for the very children of God, for that was not all that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, accomplished while he lived and dwelt among us. And I say that because he, Jesus Christ, also then paid the price for our sins that we as sinners could not pay by taking our sins upon himself and by willingly giving up his own life by being crucified and nailed to, killed and crushed on a cross at Calvary in our place and as our very substitute, even though he himself never sinned which fulfilled then, non-Christian, the justice of our holy God, and appeased then, non-Christian, the wrath of our holy God, all toward his sinful children as well. And thus, because of that, three days later, then this sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, 
for he didn't remain dead or buried in some grave. But instead, three days later, he, Jesus Christ, he rose from the grave and he defeated sin and destroyed eternal death once and for all and now offers eternal life to all who place their trust in him. Thus, let today be the day, non-Christian, that you turn from your sin. For let today be the day that you repent of your sin and you place your trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sin, as the only one who paid the price for your sin, who died for your sin, and can clothe you then in his righteousness, in his perfect life, and reconcile you back to God forever. For let today be the day, non-Christian, that you repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ. And today will be the day that you will be forgiven of your sins and given the gift, non-Christian, of eternal life. And to the Christian who is here today, for as we close this morning, brother Christian, sister Christian, I'd like to do so by encouraging you all at this time from a big picture perspective here, and in light of the second coming of Jesus Christ, and in light of verses 33 through 37 in our text today, and really in light of the entire Olivet Discourse as a whole, to stay awake, to be ready, to be obedient, and to be about the work of your master Jesus Christ until he does indeed come again. And I'd like to do so because there's been one quote that's really helped kept me grounded and sane for that matter as I've tried to faithfully preach through this Olivet Discourse. It has been this quote by James Edwards who wrote, Stay awake, or watch, as the NIV translates it, is the final and most important word or words in the Olivet Discourse, as the point of Mark chapter 13 is not so much to inform as to admonish, and not so much to provide knowledge about mysterious matters, but instead to instill obedience in believers. And thus, when Jesus Christ says in Mark chapter 13, verse 37, what I say to you, I say to everyone, watch or stay awake. Church, the to everyone there designates a wider audience than just the twelve. For this is the word of Jesus Christ to the twelve, the word of John Mark to his readers, and the word of the Holy Spirit to believers of every age. And although the end is unknown, it will suddenly come. And thus, because of that, we are to live in constant readiness. And thus, my question then to each and every one of you here this morning, church, is this. In all honesty, for are you ready and prepared for the return of Jesus Christ? Are you ready and prepared for the return of Jesus Christ. David Burgess Church, he shared that some years ago a tourist was traveling along the shores of Lake Como in northern Italy, where he came to visit a castle called the Villa Arcanati. And when the tourist arrived at the castle, a friendly old gardener opened the gate for him and showed him around the grounds which this 
old gardener kept in absolute perfect condition. For how long have you been here? The tourist asked the gardener. Oh, 24 years, the gardener said. And how often has the owner of the castle been here during that time? The tourist asked. Well, only four times, the gardener said. Huh. So when was the last time he visited? The tourist asked. About 12 years ago, again, the gardener said. And ever since then, the tourist asked. Never, said the gardener. Well, then who does come to visit you here? The tourist asked. Well, sir, I'm almost always alone, the gardener said. However, once in a while, some tourists like yourself do come. And yet, you still keep the garden here in such fine and excellent condition. As if you expected your master to come tomorrow, the tourist again asked. Oh, no, 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 said the gardener. As if I expected my master to come today. For I always expect that my master will come today. And this answer made a deep impression on the tourist. How this faithful old gardener was to his master. For day after day after day, his thought was never, tomorrow, maybe my master will come. But instead, his thought was always, today, sir, I expect my master to come. And oh, how the Lord of heaven appreciates such faithfulness on the part of his workers who labor in his vineyard, or while always thinking that today my Lord may return, and thus because of that I must do his work and be absolutely ready for him. And thus very practically speaking here, for today then is always the day, brother Christian, sister Christian, to be doing the work of an evangelist. And to be redeeming the time because the days are evil. And to be walking in love, growing in Christ's likeness, fleeing from false teachers, raising your children in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord, pressing on toward the goal, fighting the good fight, and diligently staying awake and faithfully doing the work that your Master and Lord Jesus Christ has called you to do. Since the fact of the matter is, none of us know, church, when Jesus Christ will come again. And thus, because of that, let today be the day then, brother Christian, sister Christian, and each and every other day for that matter, until the return of Jesus Christ, that you remain awake and remain sober and remain faithfully doing the work of your master, Jesus Christ, that he has called you to do, all while you expectantly wait for his great and glorious return. Since the question is not if our Lord and Savior Savior Jesus Christ will ever come again, Christian, like a thief in the night. But instead, the question is, will you, brother Christian, sister Christian, be awake and ready for his great and glorious return? And thus it is my prayer that we as a church body take serious the future reality of the return of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, and that we view his great and glorious return not as something that could happen, nor as something that might happen, nor even as something that perhaps could happen, but that we instead view the return of Jesus Christ as something that will most definitely happen. And thus because of that, we then must always be ready for his great and glorious 
glorious return. Therefore, Father, keep us from falling asleep, from dozing off into sin, and from becoming spiritually lackadaisical toward the work that you have called us to do. But instead, let us always be willing, day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, to faithfully be doing the work of our Master, all while we diligently watch for and wait for and pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, let us not become lazy on spiritual matters because we do not know when Jesus Christ will come again. Let us never fall into the trap thinking that I will try to mortify my sins tomorrow or next month or next year. But let us always be willing to do the work of our Master Jesus Christ today, to be prepared today, to be ready today, to stay awake today. Because the fact of the matter is none of us know when Jesus Christ will come again. And let us drive us to faithfully be doing his work each and every day. Father, we love you. We praise you and we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. The one who cleanses us of our sins. The one who was crucified. Who rose from the dead. Who ascended into heaven. Who sits at the right hand of God the Father. And who will come again to judge the living and the dead. And Father, I pray that when he does come again, let us not be asleep, but let us be awake, prepared and ready for his great and glorious return. Give us the grace we need, Father, to do this work in Jesus' name. Amen.